Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Brandon Showalter, who is a journalist at the Christian Post and author, along with Jeff Myers, of Exposing the Gender Lie. Brandon has been working the gender beat for the Christian Post, and in this conversation we talk about how he got into that and the Christian or his particular Christian point of view on sex and gender. Uh, felt I felt like this conversation really went rather deep. It gets a little theological, but I do believe that we tie that theology into more, I guess, psychological terms for the modern secular audience. And overall, it's a great conversation, so I'm really happy to share it with you. Without further ado, here is Brandon Showalter. Hello, sir. Hi, Benjamin. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. I've got a pair of headphones. Look at you. You're so accommodating to my needs. Happy to happy to do it. How's your um your day going? It's going pretty great. Going pretty well. Can't complain. Did you break any news? Is the apocalypse uh, <laughs> happening yet? <laughs> you guys one keep on delaying one, that, don't you? You know, you know, I think every day I see something that I think probably merits at the beginning but um no it was uh you know it really is just a dizzying dizzying season of life i'm not doing as much beat reporting as i once was because my role within our publication is modulated so i wear many hats now but still um still doing some writing and i was just traveling a lot during may so back in action yeah you want to give uh, my audience a history of your publication? That sounds interesting. Um, are you guys? In, uh, do you guys rival the Christian Science uh, uh, Christian Science Monitor? Monitor? Uh, no, broadly defined, we started back in the early two thousands. Um, we are evangelical publication, but we do feature Eastern Orthodox and Catholic voices too. We're kind of a big tent. Christian Science is not really who we are. But we're a daily news site. We do print quarterly magazines, and we're branching into new media. I recently did a podcast series, and I've done some podcasting, but we're always trying to accommodate the new media markets and trying to have the best cutting-edge journalism from a small-O Orthodox Christian perspective. Hmm. But we'll, we'll feature a variety of voices. You don't have to be, for example, a believing Christian to submit an op-ed here. If it's in keeping with generally how we see the world we'll, we'll run it but usually the kind of people who want to read cp are either very religious jews or, or christians but you know these days we have a lot of non-religious readers because of especially the gender insanity where <laughs> the the same voices are either more conservative leaning or they're radical feminists or they're christians so it's a, it's a ragtag army like i like to say <laughs> um just a point of clarification what's the difference between small o orthodoxy and small c catholic catholic well small c catholic would be uh catholic means uh small c catholic means whole um big c catholic would refer to the roman catholic church so small o orthodox would mean a tradition that is rooted in its history whereas capital o orthodox would refer to eastern orthodoxy or greek orthodoxy you know something like that uh that's the basic explanation. So and, I go to a church and we say the Holy Catholic Church, but we don't mean we don't mean Rome. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so where where would the um, the small O like meet? Uh, would it be the Nicene Creed? Like where do you think? 
probably a good as good as any place the apostles creed and nicene creed absolutely yeah. cool yeah cool and how did you get started in journalism well it was kind of an interesting thing i was actually uh, mopping floors and scrubbing toilets in 2015 i was in ministry school and thinking about what i should do next and got an idea to to write a blog and i sent it to a a friend who ran a blog site he published it then i came back to the dc area after having lived in california and worked a number of different jobs and a friend sent me this advert for the christian post as they were hiring reporters and i figured well i'll give it a try and that's really how it happened so i, I didn't foresee myself being in journalism but Sometimes life is changes, so I jumped right in. What What were some of the early hurdles for you uh, getting into journalism? You know, I think it was just kind of uh, getting used to the writing style and um, just learning a new profession, but I had the knowledge base, and so I met the qualifications that CP wanted to wanted in their reporters, and so it was just kind of a learning curve and cranking out several articles per day, um, knowing sort of how they approach issues the publication we do have a perspective but we try to be fair and get any sides and so it's just learning the business but i think part of the other challenge was just uh finding uh finding the the strength to just get it get up and do it every day like the grind of journalism is is tough you've never done it before um and the business keeps changing and we are always navigating challenges of digital media and how do we stay current in the best possible way um it's it's a, I, I have respect for the profession in a way yeah. i didn't before even as i think a lot of media is some of the most corrupt I think some of the, I think me, I, when I, with respect to the, the gender fight, which is I've done a lot of my reporting on, with one of the reasons we're talking today, I've often said, I said this at a conference recently, that I think that the media, the mass media, the corporate press has been the most culpable in this burgeoning medical scandal because it, as an entity, has protected, it has protected all of the other entities that have furthered this nonsense with their lies because they've governed how people think about it. And they've twisted our, our words, our language in service to this dogma. And we at the Christian Post won't do that. Okay. So before we get to that, which I think, again, one of the reasons that I concentrate so much on gender is because it is um, it touches all these other aspects of information, governance, medicine, uh, cultural fluency, childhood, parenthood, familyhood, selfhood, individuality, liberalism, uh, traditionalism. It touches all those things. So it's a good intersection for all these other topics while also being the foundation of society in my yeah. estimation. Um, you, but before we, we broach into that, you, you mentioned that uh, the Christian post has a perspective. So what is your, like the competition with regard to religious publications and, and how do you kind of corner that market and serve that market? And what do you bring that's unique to that? Is it, it's not necessarily you don't put statements of faith before and after every article, but you're coming from a point yeah. of view. Yeah. Well, in terms of what the competition is like, I really don't follow that because in a lot of journalism, I the numbers about what what is what are other magazines what's their traffic like, how are they are they being read, and sort of in journalism, the business side of things and the editorial side of things kind of operate like silos, and so I just 
kind of do my work and try to produce good content, feeding yeah. the content beast. But you're correct that uh, as a, you know, small Orthodox Christian publication, we are informed by our faith. And so, you know, I, people can read. Uh, we do have a statement of faith, it's not before and after every article, but it is there on the website. So that does sort of serve as the the basis of how we see the world and it is in, infuses everything that we do. Um, and what, what is that, that in a line or two or a byline or two? That we believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Bible is our primary lens for how we understand the world. Um, that the good news of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, died on a cross, rose from the dead and through faith in him, by a shed blood on the cross that we can be restored to life and uh, be forgiven and his kingdom is advancing. And uh, that's, it's a very, very brief distillation of what we believe, but the values that we hold flow out from that central message of the gospel. Um, yeah. And so from Genesis to revelation, we regard that as, as God's word, but I will say um, we, we do interview and we, we feature voices that, don't agree with us, obviously. So we're not only speaking to Christians with other Christians. We we want to. I've, I've interviewed many people who are not, you know, Christians or anything. But that is that's the flavor you're going to get a CP. <laughs> yeah, a um, a secular point of view, and I would say um, a poor point of view, like uh, as in lacking richness of understanding point of view, would. Um, and has and does ascribe to Christianity, to the Bible, a mythic quality that is out of line with reality, right? So there's myth and fact. Um, from my point of view, which I think is a little bit richer, what myth does is give moral content to the world. So I'm just wondering how you navigate um, fact and myth or, or faith, I guess is, is the more proper term. Um, does faith... Trump fact? Does it in, and or or does it inform fact in a way? And how how do you yourself have you like developed and wrestled with? That? Well, I think one of the one of the things that is, uh, it, that speaks to that a lot, at least in the Western world, is that we recognize as Christians that in the West we are children of the Enlightenment. Uh, that, but we that's actually not such a great thing. As much as the Enlightenment may have produced some good fruit. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it is a good thing in some ways. The philosopher Descartes once said, I think, therefore I am. And we as Christians reject that, that mindset, that we don't believe that we are fundamentally brains on sticks. Like there's more to us, there's more to the human person anthropologically than just uh, a thinking thing. We are primarily loving things. And so we do have a supernatural worldview. And indeed, for most of the world, that's still kind of how it all is. I mean, we, you know, people talk about the supernatural a lot, and we, we, we that's just kind of a given. Um, so, in terms of, we're, we're not naturalists in that everything that we believe has to be grounded in sort of these post-Enlightenment standards, but with the great story of Scripture, with the indisputably supernatural elements of it, well... We, we just kind of own that. I mean, yeah. that that makes us a peculiar people to a lot of people, and especially when it comes to certain issues and how that informs politics. There's not a lot of understanding because of the distinctly supernatural elements in our worldview. Um, 
but faith has its reasons too. I, I, a lot of people like to hold out that secularism is this inherently neutral lens through which to work with the world. And I don't agree with that. I don't think it's any more neutral than, than our faith or anything else. And it's been, it's been a curious thing, even doing journalism in the last few years where we've watched the systematic erosion of all you know, Judeo-Christian norms and ethics start to go away. And there are a lot of people thinking, I don't, I don't ascribe belief in this religion, but I kind of like the way these, these norms have functioned. They've provided a pretty solid foundation. And um, so maybe people don't like religion, but they also don't like godlessness either. And so it's, it's very, it's very, it's been a fascinating phenomenon to watch. Yeah. So this is a good point to enter the gender discussion because from a hardcore, um, I guess one, one way of putting it is bioessentialism. So there's a wonderful, one of my favorite guests, one of my favorite people in the entire discussion on gender is Helen Joyce. She's a British uh, author and writer. She used to work for The Economist as an editor there. And she wrote a very hefty, very accessible book just called Trans When Ideology Meets Reality. And when I spoke to her about that book, what she distilled woman and man into were these gametes. Like there's a, there's a large gamete and a small gamete and it's binary. And when she did, distilled it down, I felt that that makes sense. That bio, biological reality makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't by any means tell the whole story. And where postmodernism and queer theory get their hooks in is when that fact turns into a faith, when that, when that reality turns into society or individuality. So how does your faith broadly construed or even personally inform your take on what is a woman, what is a man, what, what their purpose is, um, and how they should be treated or conceived of in reality. And how does that, um, how is that distinct from the queer theory or gender ideology point of view and the bioessentialist um, point of view? Well, I am a big fan of material reality and I would, yeah, I, I have seen uh, that interview with Helen Joyce, I, I'm familiar with her work and would agree, of course, in the reality that females have XX chromosomes and males have XY and those those very vanishingly rare conditions, sometimes known as intersex or disorders of sexual development, that that there are those genetic anomalies, but that does not deny the sexual binary. Um, but I think with my faith, with the Christian faith, it does start from the very beginning that human human persons are made male and female in God's image and likeness, that God is neither male nor female, They're, that masculinity and femininity uh, and all of its expressions are contained within the Christian, the Christian God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's triune. So there's a dignity that comes, there's an inherent dignity that comes from being made in God's image. Um, and, and what that doesn't mean, and I think people are surprised to hear this, but particularly because some Christian denominations and traditions have, in years past, and even to a certain extent today, have enshrined gender norms that are much more cultural than anything. They're not hardwired into our biology. I'm, I'm a guy who prefers the arts and music, so I don't. <laughs> and, I, and I grew up in the you know countryside of Virginia where that really wasn't so much of a thing. But I'm still a male, you know, <laughs> got the genes to prove it. So what I would add to Helen's take is that not only are we biologically male or female, and that is indeed an essential part of our humanity, 
I ascribe, there's this dignity that comes, I believe, from the fact that I believe that all human persons, male and female, are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's a line from Psalm 139, (laughs) in God's image and likeness. Mm -hmm. And because of that, the human body deserves, uh, the the human body by its physical structure, including our sex organs, uh, they, that communicates a moral message that we as Christians are obligated to respect. Okay. So, how do you, um, how have you seen sex education be implemented in a Christian way? When, when, when we include the morality into the sex bodies, how, do, how is that promulgated, communicated? Well, <laughs> that's quite an interesting question, particularly given some of the baggage of American Christianity, and I won't go too far into it. Oh, but go into it. Let's, we, we are well, messed up. I, we are a messed up country, and that's I'm why we're country. messing up the world, and right? A lot of churches are messed up, but um, I am a big fan of, I'm not a Catholic, everybody thinks I am, because I went to the Catholic University of America for graduate school, but um, I am a big fan of the theology of the body of Pope John Paul II. I think he's got a very healthy, truly, Mm -hmm. you know, Christian understanding of uh, anthropology, who we are as human persons and how we function, including in human sexuality and all that. Within American Christianity, sex education, um, a theology of a theology of sexuality and bodies, how, how we educate ourselves about who we are as male and female, is is fraught with some baggage. Unfortunately, I think because the sexual revolution of the sixties and seventies really kind of upended a lot of things. There was the industrial revolution and the technology re- revolution concurrent with the free love, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll of that, the hedonism of that time. And so what has happened, and I'm not a religious historian, but this is just my 30,000 foot macro view, is that a lot of religious leaders, Christian leaders saw that chaos. And then there was this Jesus revolution, the movie, and then the Jesus movement, all these hippies came to the Lord. And so there's, there's, there was this rejection of the hedonism of that time and this pendulum swing into what has now been called purity culture, or it was kind of a more harsh moralism <laughs> that, you know, biblically rooted ideas, but then it doesn't really give, it didn't really give people an embodied theology so much. Um, and so there's just been this kind of back and forth pendulum swing in, in some decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think now with the proliferation of gender ideology and we're, queerness and all that, there's there's a rethinking of things about how do we approach this? How do we teach children to love the bodies that they are in, that that it is impossible to be born in the wrong one, that your body is you, and that, like I said a moment ago, by its physical structure, the body itself declares the gospel. The body communicates something profound about who we are as male and female, as human persons. And so, that's sort of a brief his- historical take, but you know, I, I certainly think that the Bible has a lot to say about male and female, but I would want to be careful that it, what it doesn't mean is that we have to uh, rigidly enshrine kind of the same gender norms that now transgenderism does just in reverse. (laughs) Because I think when people think of Christians and gender norms, some some denominations and tribes are very much obsessed with them. And they think that all these, all these roles. And I just, I, I don't agree with that. I think that, you know, if a girl likes to be a tomboy or she has more stereotypically masculine interests, that's fine. And there's nothing unbiblical about that. Um, particularly in a post-industrial economy, there are all sorts of challenges that 
Life is just more complicated, and I'm not going to make any hard and fast rules about how a man has to act or how a woman has to act, but I certainly would want my convictions about all of that to be rooted in the Bible from a faith perspective. That's how I try to approach it. It's Cultures vary, so I'm not going to say there's one prescriptive fix about all of that, even though Bible's the foundation. So you try to be small O orthodox when it comes to sex? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Basically... How did you fall into the gender uh, beat or offbeat? Uh, well, it, believe it or not, my first day during my trial period was the day after the Pulse nightclub massacre in Orlando. And so June 13th, 2016, there's this horrible massacre in Orlando, 52, you know, 51 or 52, I think it was men, maybe some women were shot. I don't, it, it was a horrible, horrible event. And so... I'm thrown into covering some of that. And uh, one of the things that my editor then told me as I'm getting initial feedback as a new, as a newbie reporter, there's like, well, we don't have to edit your pieces for tone because you're communicating how we sort of see things as a Christian publication, but you're not hostile, you're gracious, but you're truthful. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I, this whole thing was so new to me. It was just like, well, if I'm having success here, I'll continue. But uh, then the next Within the next couple of weeks, one of the senior people came in to the newsroom and said, you know, all these conversion therapy, you know, bans are being considered more now. And I was becoming aware of the gender identity um, contagion that was starting to take off. And those bills were, were applying to the trans thing now, too, where if someone was confused about their body, distressed girl, gender dysphoria, whatever you want to call it, counseling that young person to accept their physical sex was going to be illegal. And so they wanted to tackle that. And I just remember hesitating, but I just sort of felt that kind of spiritual conviction that I needed to do it anyway. And so I did. Okay. And then I just kept finding out more and more and learned about all the medical aspects of it, the blockers, hormones, and surgery. And I just, I was that kind of the, the phrase that I always say, is that when I learned about the medicalization, something inside me snapped. And I just thought, I've, okay, I can't look away. It was just, I knew I, for, for, for whatever reason, I, I found myself writing about this horrible stuff. Okay. What was that hesitation, though? I think it was just the hesitation, just knowing how touchy all of these issues were. And just, do I really want to enter this fray? And is this going to impede? I did that very Washington DC kind of hedging. Do I really want to tackle this issue? You know, this, there's all sorts of things tied up in this. Am I going to be, you know, I, I don't know. It was just the, the touchiness of it. was just kind of, do I want to go here? Really? I just started as a journalism person, you know, it was, you know, just kind of the hesitation, but I, I just, the conviction that I had to keep going was overrode that hesitation. Yeah. So there's, I'm just going to bring this up and we can make it nuanced. Mm -hmm. Christian cultural Christianity has been on losing ground mm -hmm. since whenever, right? Um, the last big thing before the transition thing was gay marriage and the concept of marriage as described by the church for, centuries, if not millennia, had been completely stripped, 
Right. And from the top down, the public opinion was changed on this wholesale. And Christianity and its conception of marriage as between one woman and one man, period, um, was consigned to the dust heap of history, um, insofar as that's even possible. Um, so that, that's kind of the background radiation. And coming down one way or the other brings up gay rights and uh, homosexuality in the church and the wrongs and the historical oppression or whatever you want to put it. And then also the Catholic scandals. Um, all this stuff is going on. Sexuality, however, is different than transition. If you believe that, I, I think it, it kind of is different, but that is in and of itself obscured conversion therapy used to be about homosexuality. Now it's about body acceptance rather than, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I guess it's about body transformation rather than body acceptance, um, as opposed to, to sexuality acceptance. Um, so I mean, leading up to the gender stuff, what was your opinion on that? And I also want to bring in the slippery slope fallacy or the Christian, the cultural Christian losing footing and how you've had to grapple with that and kind of draw a line in the sand insofar as it's still, uh, Christians are still able to do that culturally without being automatically assigned the label bigot and backward, et cetera. Right. Well, it, it is a very interesting time in history. Um, when I started at CP, the Obergefell ruling had been just one year before. So I was fresh on the scene in this landscape. And uh, the slippery slope fallacy, I remember being a part of the debates back in college in the mid-2000s when they were at the state level. Certain states were passing. I think 2000, the big election in 2004 where I think 11 states amended their state constitutions to define marriage in the way that it has for millennia, as you said, always been defined. We at the Christian Post continue to adhere to uh, historic biblical sexual ethics as we always have, um, but I'll be the first to say, and I've gotten anecdotal phone calls and emails and you know messages from heartbroken parents who tell me that their young, that their children, their teenage children are same-sex attracted and that they're now being told that they should go on hormones or that that's that they're actually born in the wrong body and when the conversion therapy bans that i just mentioned were being considered uh when i was asked to report on it i had no idea that the trans thing was being you know was that that that, that was how it was being applied that was when it was a sort of a wake-up call that first of all that they were doing that to young people and that that was even a thing and then then you see the medical apparatus sort of coming on the scene ready to do it. And so it was, it was all, it was a lot to take in. Um, you say being consigned to the dust heap of history. I don't even know if I would agree with that so much because I think, you know, sexual throughout, throughout history, we've seen sort of a back and forth kind of, you know, thing. J.D. Unwin in 1934 uh, wrote a book called Sex and Culture. And, you know, he's, he's traced all of these, you know, civilizations where, he, he's, he's tracked when a society abandons chastity, what happens to it? I think his, his words were pretty prophetic as to what's happening today in ours. But um, mm. civilizations do rise and fall, and oftentimes that is tethered to how they treat, you know, human sexuality, sexual morality. Um, what I try to do, my, my approach is, is that I recognize that while I don't apologize for it, I mean, I'm, I'm a don, I don't. Personally, I don't even believe in contraception. I'm, I'm with the Catholics on that, and so I, I am. I, I own it all. 
But I recognize fundamentally that in many churches that they're, and again, in light of the hist- some of the history that I just showed, there's a lot of pain around these kinds of issues and that people who grappled with some of these things, LGBTQ plus issues, many people, even if they were taught the faith or they were taught sexual ethics, they weren't pastored well through a lot of things. And that's that's no excuse to compromise, in my view, morally speaking. But I want to at least be a person that recognizes the complexity of how you know, people experienced <laughs> a lot of this and understand the times and the milieu that we live in, while also being faithful to my convictions. And so that's not, that's a, it's kind of a tightrope of the, the phrase that gets bandied about in Christian circles is speaking truthfully and in love. No one does that perfectly. I don't do it perfectly, but that's kind of how we as a publication at CP have tried to approach it. Would it be fair to say that you're couching morality within the with the human element? It's in dialogue with a human being as as a developmental entity, as somebody who uh, you know is flawed but also perfectible. That's probably pretty good. I think a vibrant orthodoxy should inform a vibrant orthopraxy. So what we believe should inform how we practice. Um, and I, but I, but again, with in light of the pendulum swing from a from the hedonism of several decades ago to a more rigid moralism, you know, I'm hopeful that perhaps with the proliferation, again, of the theology of the body, which, again, I'm a big fan of, that we can get this right, (laughs) and that we recognize the breadth of human experience um, and speak the truth of of the gospel in a culture that has really lost its way. Um, And I think the apotheosis of that is trans scourge because you'd be surprised benjamin how many atheists call me saying i don't even think i believe in god but i think i believe in demons because of what this has done to my family and my my daughter is now sterile because she got she's been on testosterone that she got at planned parenthood and the horrors of this medicalization and uh all that it has entailed has brought people to the edge of their of their sanity they're they're brought to the end of themselves and they're asking these deep profound sort of moral and philosophical questions about the meaning of life and good and evil um i i believe that i as a christian have something unique and powerful to say but i want to do so in humility um i recognize uh you mentioned the catholic abuse the abuse scandals and Religion doesn't exactly have uh, a good reputation, Christian Christian churches included. Some are better than others, obviously, but I want to I want to approach it very carefully and truthfully. But because it's a uh, there's a lot of pain tied up in all of these kinds of issues. Um, yeah, long winded answer to your question there, but no, thank you for being so open about this. The one short sightedness or failure of secularism is. Um, and pardon me, secularists, for pointing out your flaws. Um, it, it lacks a framework of horror, shame, and fear. And so when something truly shameful, horrific, and, and scary occurs, um, it like Christianity at least provides the concept of Satan and demons, and it probably doesn't get that right. And it is kind of like painting with a broad brush, or at least with really primary colors. But when things start to disintegrate, 
when when sterility comes on the scene, right? And and you know, like it's one thing to say, okay, well, abortion, you know, uh, we need wiggle room around abortion, and you know, there's a spectrum on of abortion um, discourse or, or thoughts, and I'm sure tons of atheists and secularists um, find abortion morally abhorrent, but they don't want the state involved or these others these other considerations, and they 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 can apply their morality or do more of a live and let live thing, but abortion. If you think about it one way, it is murder. If you think about it another way, it's healthcare, right? And how that abortion, once we start to mess around with what abortion means, we eventually start to mess around with what woman means. And why why not be sterile? Why why not just why why go through all the process of being pregnant and being fertile if you can just cut it off at the pass and opt out of it altogether? And there's something a little bit more horrific about that, about your your own children deciding to kill all of your grandchildren, like just to completely end your line. And from a secular point of view, an atheistic point of view, it's not as the, the, the framework of horror, shame, and fear isn't quite there. It has to be packed with evolutionary psychology. It has to be packed with these other things. So I can see, <coughs> pardon me, I can see from your point of view, wanting to be accessible um, to, to people who, who lack such a dramatic framework, but still to give them guardrails or, or like, a, what, like some sort of rope um, to, to ground themselves, to pull themselves out, and then to start to organize themselves when facing the chaos of fear, horror, and shame. Um, I'm trying to find a question, but I didn't. No, good. I appreciate all that. But, well, and, you know, I, I've learned a lot from secular people, too, because I think, I mean, I, I love talking with people who don't believe as I do, and, and so I think it makes me a better Christian to hear from their experiences and learn how they think. Um, I, I would, I would agree though. I think secularism even itself is a different kind of thing today than it was even 30 or 40 years ago, because secularism, I think for some used to mean it, they still had some of the Judeo Christian underpinnings that were more in the, in the, the water. We here, this, this underlying assumptions were kind of there, whereas today it seems to be a little bit more venomous because of how you know, Judeo-Christian norms and ethics and Christian faith has broken down. But the question that I want to ask as a Christian is, so why is it broken down? And I think the abuse in the church, the hypocrisy of leadership, and the lack of integrity amongst Christians who don't live their convictions, that does more damage to to faith than even the most militant, venomous secularism. I mean, I think obviously there are forces, external forces that work against religious faith in the world. But, you know, before I point the finger at anybody, I've got three, you know, I'm going to self-examine first before I start leveling accusations at other people, even though I'll be the first to say, I think that there is a very hostile culture in the West today uh, that is against any sort of small orthodox yeah. you know christian paradigm or yeah. thing like conservative judaism or anything like that there's there's definitely a uh, a secularist vengeful uh, In, approach to a lot of things we're, we're on the eve of this month of um pride and uh, our season of pride the one that precedes the fall and uh, you know and and it's it's ramping up and everybody everybody is so sick of this stuff and it's just hopefully it, it slows down but i was just thinking about this because you know it's, t it's the season to think about this stuff um that that like these the slightest tremors of 
Christian nationalism will send the liberal order into frenzies of panic. And there's probably a lot of calculus and manipulation going on around that. But so Christian nationalism is this big, oh, no, 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 the fascists are coming. But then we have to, we're mandated to put rainbows on everything. Our children are mandated to accept all this other stuff. And the state is imposing its own religion very religiously, very explicitly religiously. Um, what, what, what's your take on that? Um, it's easy. It's easy to, to go the, uh, you know, uh, ban, but the whole daily wire route where, where it's a cultural war issue. Um, I think that there's more subtle ways. I'm, I'm wondering how you, you know, do you respond to fear? Do you respond like, Oh, this is just human nature. And we're just at a, in a particular period of history where this is always going to happen. And this is just the time. So how do you approach that? And then how do you build a framework of communicating resistance to that or alternative to that? Well, the Christian nationalism question is not an area where I've engaged so much, but I'll give you my honest take. And I think that some of that is just they don't want small o orthodox Christians to participate in public life because small o orthodox Christians are known to be opponents of the sexual revolution. They are the ones who resist everything being draped in the, I think it's called the progress flag, this new, it's not just the rainbow flag, it's got that triangle and the, with the, the pink, blue, white, brown, black, you know, <laughs> invasion of the, of the flag. But even all, you know, all the rainbow flags, like small Orthodox Christians are known to be opposed to that. And so while I have seen in some churches what I believe to be idolatrous expressions of love of country over God, I have mm. seen things that, have, that, that bug me. And, and I think our border on what I would call idolatry, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold a candle, in my view, to how brutally the, the, the T lobby, especially now, the trans lobby, has conquered and colonized every square inch of culture to the point where, as you say, everybody is getting sick of seeing just all these flags everywhere. Everything is themed to this end for for a whole month and there's these exhibitionist displays in the streets i mean christians have been pointing that out for many years but now it seems to have gotten so extreme that even people who don't ascribe belief in the lord jesus christ are are fed up with it too and it is it's especially alarming to see i mean children have been going to pride parades for years but it seems more over overt now and especially when there are naked adults walking around in the streets and there's children. It's just like, oh, oh, we're all those, we're all those religious people who were decrying this decades ago. Maybe they were saying slippery slope. Was that really a fallacy or was it a prophecy? Like, oh, I've I've started to notice that like, oh, maybe they weren't so crazy after all. So I, I, here here again, Um, with, with nationalism though, I, I have the question that I've always been asking ever since that sort of entered our discourse is that, well, which is worse? nationalism or globalism i don't think both isms are wrong because from a christian standpoint they elevate uh both isms are are not good because they can become idolatrous but i see globalism as a far worse threat because of i i my theology is such that i think nation states are a good way to go and because if we have a global state if if it becomes totalitarian there's nowhere to repair to you know, we need 
we need good nations. We need strong, stable nations. We need to be able to have differences in culture with unique systems to fit different people groups. I just think the Bible provides for nations, not one big global state. And I see globalism as even more idolatrous than nationalism. Though nationalism, I think, especially when it gets enmeshed with theology too much, can become, it can distract from and indeed take away, it, it gives worship to a, what, is, what is essentially a false god. Um, the reverence that we owe God is transferred onto a, a man-made nation, and that is, that's wrong in my view. But I think the Christian nationalism thing in many respects is some of it's real, but some of it's ginned up to just discourage any small Orthodox Christian from participating in public life. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of tune it out. I mean, I'm going to try to, you know, as a journalist, I try to not, I, I try to walk this careful line of not, especially not doing activism or advocacy, even though we at CP do have a perspective and that's not hidden. Um, so I try to I keep that walk walk that tension very very carefully yeah um i want to be able to talk to anybody and if i if i'm seen as too you know yeah. partisan or the other it's it's not gonna it's, it's not gonna work it, it again the gender thing it, it really tests one's um convictions and their ethics because when it comes to and i've said this on my show several times now it's just kind of a theme either either it's an either or proposition to not trans a child is child abuse or to trans a child is child abuse. You can't have one thing can't be child abuse and not child abuse at the same time. So, and, and so I, I understand what you're saying about activism, but at, at a certain point, you know, I, I mean, are, are you like, is it mill, millstone by proxy if you're not? <laughs> In my mind, I mean, I, I see people talking about that. I, I've been, I've said publicly, and I'll say it here. That there isn't a millstone heavy enough for those who are doing this to children. I mean, I regard it as child abuse. I absolutely do. Um, it's horrific, unmitigated child abuse. I did an okay. event. I hosted an event in Dallas where we. I made that very clear in my opening remarks that that's how we see it. It's absolutely disgusting to cut off a young person's genitals or their their breasts, their secondary sex characteristics, and give them an experimental cocktail of horrific drugs in pursuit of a physiological impossibility. Absolutely not. The Christian Post is going to plant its flag on that hill and say, no, like like Gandalf, you shall not pass. Okay. We will not budge. No. Um, but yeah, everything, our moral categories are so inverted, I believe, because of the advance of this, this revolution. Um, with, with, the, uh, with the ideological and institutional capture of so many, you know, places of cultural high space and power in our in our country this now rules the day unfortunately but you're determined to resist to the bitter end so in one vector of attack and i just spoke with lior sapir lior sapir about this um at length in a very fascinating interview published a couple weeks ago about the tra- good trans yeah. kid so you're up against this concept of the trans kid what is the christian or what is your counterpoint to the trans kid the trans kid is particularly virulent idea and once you have that idea all this stuff about mutilation it doesn't make any sense because you're actually saving the trans kids life uh so to speak um so what is your perspective on that idea and combating or countering that idea 
I believe there is no such thing. It's a completely flawed, colossally flawed anthropology. There is no such thing as someone who is ontologically trans. We are only ever always male or female. And from <laughs> there are certainly young people who experience mental illness and psychiatric distress. There's psychological distress. They may suffer. That doesn't change the fact of our biology. It certainly doesn't change how God made them. Um, and it is, I think it's an atrocity that we'd even tell a child what could be more cruel that there is something not just wrong with their body, but they have a, that the body, that their body itself is somehow wrong. Um, so I reject it with as much enthusiasm as I could possibly muster. Um, I, I very much believe that Jennifer Billick's work, investigative journalism and how the medical industrial complex is profiting off of this generation of young people, that this is a huge income stream for them. When you look at the costs of puberty blockers and then cross sex hormones and body disfiguring surgeries, the money that can be made, it's not only about money, but that has to be a huge motivator. Any good mm -hmm. journalist should follow the money. Uh, we need to peer behind the curtain, look under the hood and see what's really going on here. But this was invented uh, I believe by some very wicked and evil people in high places to create this concept of a person for whom their birth sex, their natal sex is not relevant to their being. And, you know, that just contravenes everything I believe as a Christian, but just as a person who can observe physical reality, no, there is no such thing as a trans kid. Um, Okay, so um, I'm going to propose idea. It feels weak to be. It feels weak to me. So maybe you have a better way of uh, just re-asking the question. But if you're basically saying, and you haven't said this, but if you're basically saying that God doesn't make mistakes, right? God doesn't make people in the wrong body, but we still have deformities that are physical deformities. You still have very egregious accidents of nature. And we do everything in in, in, our, uh, in our power, and as good Christians, I assume we do everything in our power to, you know, provide wheelchair and the ramp and everything for for the kid who who has that and all the services needed for for the least among us, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it it's it's odd to think that God doesn't make mistakes, and yet there are there is obviously flaws in nature. Nature is flawed. Nature does produce unviable. Um, offspring. Um, so how do, how do you string that, um, square that with the trans as a different category than paraplegic or something like that? Well, theologically speaking, there's the concept of what we call the fall, where we recognize from in Genesis where when sin entered the world, so did a lot of other things. That means that there are, as you say, deformities, sickness, disease, all these other things that are not you know, in keeping with health and wholeness. And so theologically, spiritually, that's what I would ascribe it to. The difference, I think, um, with the question of trans is that it is, it's such an attack on the fundamental integrity of the body. You know, it, it, it is, as I said just a, a minute ago, it's not that there's something wrong with it, but it, that it itself is somehow wrong. It, it, it attacks it on a more fundamental level. It's not that if you have something wrong with your body, a deformity, or you know, you're know you born without an arm or a leg, you know, you still recognize that the body has integrity. Trans says the opposite. 
this is like, no, the whole thing's wrong. And you've got to overload your system with synthetic hormones that are at odds with your biology and then cut parts off. And not only do you cut parts off, but you will not be able to propagate human race anymore. It's, it, it compromise. It, it's, it, it's, it's death. Um, so I, I just think it just attacks it. This, this movement, the gender identity, the trans movement, whatever you want to call it, it, is so at odds with reality and it attacks it at a more fundamental level than it's different than something that might be wrong with it, but you would try to fix the problem to truly improve your life. Um, Cause these, these surgeries and these drugs, they don't, <laughs> and I, 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 I think with this movement, like we're going to see a reckoning soon because we'll see the victims more and more walking in our midst with other, with other past scourges. It was, you're able to keep it hidden for a while, but especially now with all the detransitioners starting to emerge and you see their disfigured bodies and the, the ravages of the hormones and you, it's just, the evidence is right there in front of your face. It, it's, these are not life-giving things. Whereas, you know, people with diseases or deformities, they're able to live and function in society. And though they may still have some problems, you know, the way we treat those things, like people are able to live their lives in greater in increasingly greater measures of health and vitality. Not so with this. Hmm. You know, you, the, this this movement is just, it's not only doing such damage to young developing bodies, uh, but it's also just fracturing so many families. And so it, there's just not, I, I say this a lot too, there's not a single area of culture um, where this this, where there's been an incursion of this ideology in it, where it doesn't turn it to ash. It ruins everything it touches, and not only the physical body, but family. It ruptures countless families. I, I don't know how many phone calls I've gotten since I started on this beat nearly seven years ago, where it's just heart-crushed moms and dads who are at their wit's end, and their lives are shattered. They use that word, and um, I think it, that that's even deeper pain, I think, than even the disastrous health effects that happen. It's the relational carnage that's that's so much worse. And we haven't even begun and haven't yeah. we haven't even begun as a society to reckon with that. Some of that's starting to emerge a little bit, but as the medical issues now are being scrutinized, fifteen or eighteen states have passed bans on blockers, hormones and surgeries, that kind of thing for young people. The family pain is going to be the next phase, I think, hmm. as we reckon as what we allowed as a society to to tear apart. Yeah child relationships and, and that sort it's splinters families left right? what's your sense your feeling or your thoughts on the trans theology um what's the what's the what's the what's its theology what do you where do you think its origins are um on a, on a spiritual or a theological level well there's people who are better at speaking to this i mean i i don't hide from thinking from saying that i think it's diabolical I think it's just evil. Um, it is, uh, my executive editor likes to say that it is, well, he says that the, the religion of American religion now is, some people would say it's LGBT dogma, but he says it's the religion of narcissism and that transgender ideology is the ultimate attempt to become one's own God. It's the religion of self. Um, and so it's that I'm going to try to change my biology by way of chemicals hormones, surgeries, I'm going to try to change what God has made and call it good. So uh, it is an antithesis of Christianity, if I do say so myself. I think it is um, 
just ruthlessly antichrist, if I could use a religious term. Um, but you know, I, I think it, it does. It does. It's a. It's. Um, I've heard a lot of people say this, and I agree with it. It's a new form of Gnosticism that the body is bad. You're going to transcend the body in order to be this sort of other essence, like this idea of a gendered soul. Now, I believe that. Christian anthropology holds that we are body, soul, and spirit, and I believe that our our physical body, including maleness and females, femaleness, does inform our emotions, our minds, how we think. Like it's all connected. We're integrated, whole beings. But I believe transgender ideology and the broader sexual revolution is a, is a war against all of that. I I think the the cosmic spiritually speaking like ephesians 6 in the new testament there's uh, the chapter the very famous chapter in the book of ephesians chapter 6 where the apostle paul writes about spiritual warfare and he says very famously that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against powers principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places that the cosmic war um, between good and evil manifests itself in a particularly potent way against the body because the enemy of our souls satan whatever you want to call him wages war on the image of god as male and female that the human the human body is such a powerful proclamation of itself we, we regard it we have a reverence for it its physical its physical structure by itself conveys the moral message that we're obligated to respect and so there's a war against that very powerful that very powerfully um but in, in view of all of that, um, we see we see that conflict play out in several different ways. And where God is God of life, the enemy is God of death. <laughs> we see that converge on the human frame. Uh, and so, it's not a surprise to me that all of this is happening in light of that greater sort of picture. And that's how I conceive of it theologically and spiritually. Um, but I I think that. <laughs> Again, you don't have to believe in Jesus Christ to understand this is wrong because, uh, as said in the Book of Romans, I think the law of God is written on every human heart. Not everybody agrees with that, but I, I believe that way. Um, and so people are able to perceive realities because we are rational creatures and we, can, we are moral creatures. We can, we can discern these kinds of things. I think for many people, they don't even realize how much propaganda they have been under in light of all many many number of forces that have contributed to this current malaise but that's kind of where i land mm -hmm. one concept that you're bringing up that i think is very fruitful but needs a little bit um more unpacking is the concept of idolatry and um so i'd like to give you a chance to to highlight or, or kind of make that more concrete because you're still saying that maybe, maybe you're saying, uh, or maybe you're, maybe I'm assuming that you're saying that the human beings need to worship and there's a proper way to worship. And then there's an improper way to worship. So what is worship? What is idolatry? And what is the proper, what is the not idolatry? And how does, how do, how do you convey that to somebody who, who doesn't use spiritual language such as God? Um, if you're able to even translate that, or if, if you lose God, you lose the whole structure of thought. Well, it is a spiritual word, and some people don't think in those terms at all, especially if they don't believe in God. So, you know, talk of idolatry, they don't even know what that is. And so, I I would regard, you know, when I think of what worship means and is, I think in the, the Hebrew, it actually means to lean forward to kiss. 
it's a very it's a very deep kind of part of who we are. I believe that we, because of like I was saying, Christian anthropology, we're made body, soul, and spirit. That there is a part of our humanity that is oriented toward. I say God, but I believe those higher things. The people who are very spiritual, some of the big phrase that you hear, I'm spiritual but not religious. It's like some people know there's something more. And so um, I, as a Christian, believe that who I am as a human being owes a certain reverence toward God. Um, but if people don't believe in God, that's probably going to be projected and directed toward something else. Being. Um, the spirit something, something you name it there's something yeah people sort of direct it in all sorts of the ways and so anything from my perspective that would disrupt or steal that kind of reverence that is solely god's would how it would be would be idolatry in my view and that's defined by the bible <laughs> so anything that sort of and there's any number of any number of sins you might say that contribute to idolatry but you know in the ten commandments you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul your mind saying love your neighbor as yourself like any of the other commandments of the ten commandments just say uh, is actually um a form of idolatry i believe that all sin in a certain way it the word for sin is to miss the mark if you actually look at its definition that anytime we partake of that it is in fact, in my view, a form of idolatry because it takes what is God's and appropriates it for ourselves. So it's 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 a violation of um, of what we owe God. Uh, I think you see this in the story of throughout throughout the Old Testament, and certainly this extends in, even into the New, where God accuses Israel of adultery. But what they're really doing is practicing idolatry, but he uses adulterous language. Mm. Well, adultery, adultery is a form of idolatry. Um, and, you know, throughout, throughout the story of Scripture, idolatry is called many different things, but it, what it really is is it's taking from what is God's, and it's for our own self-centered, uh, vain purposes. So mm. that's sort of a course in idolatry. But, you know, yeah. I, it requires a constant. I, as a Christian, who you know, I, I battle. I'm I'm human like anybody else. It, it's all. It kind of requires me to continue to self-examine that any area of my life that is not fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ is something that I, you know, spend time with Him and say, "Okay, Lord, I need to, yeah, take care of this today." <laughs> There, there's a way, a psychological way. I spoke with Lisa Marciano a few years ago, and she gave me a really good um, summation on um, psychological health. Yeah. And we were talking about like uh, social contagion with regard in the context of uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, like where there's just these clusters of, of females and males, um, just all ascribing all of a sudden to this trans ideology. Um, and that brings up the notion of the cult and what, how, how do you know if you're in a cult? How do you, how do you know if you have some sort of mind virus of some sort? And she, Lisa said that if you're, if your worldview is narrowing and getting smaller and smaller and smaller, that's one, that's one, uh, tell. And if it's getting broader and broader and broader, it's another tell. And I could see to translate, um, the language of idolatry into more psychological terms, idolatry, um, 
will will fixate on something and then start to fracture. It'll start to to make to to translate everything according to one narrow point of view or to make everything about one thing. Whereas proper worship um, to to the one Almighty God or whatever you need to call that will will expand your connectivity. You'll start to see God in all of the things and then start to see everything as its own has has a divine light and has a, a particular place and a particular you know function. Right, lust has a particular function and when it's serving the correct function, then it's actually holy. Sexuality is purely holy and probably one of the highest things when it is put in the proper uh, place. When it's not in the proper place, it can it will start to erode relationships, to, to cut you off from society, let's say, with porn addiction, right? Porn porn is probably the, you know, I, I, I bag on feminism, I bag on liberalism a lot with abortion and stuff like that, but I think pornography is 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 a huge bane on on males in our society. And it is indistinguishable indistinguishable from idolatry because there is no other human being you are totally cut off and your sexuality is then a function is is on a short circuit and and the the intention of it becoming a bonding thing and becoming uh the part of of becoming a full and total human being and i'm not perfect by any means in this is cut off through the interface of of idolatry so just just kind of flesh out what you're saying no i i agree with that entirely i think Particularly when you, you talk about uh, just what we set before our eyes, what we behold, we become. And if uh, I think pornography is such a distortion of what ought to be a beautiful thing, sexuality, and it it just robs us of the ability to have intimacy. And, you know, if, if that is not the epitome of idolatry, I don't think I know what is. And what's so cruel about it is that it, it does... <laughs> Not only do people make billions and billions of dollars off of it, and it enslaves our bodies. You know, our bodies are made to worship God, and so this twists and distorts it. And, you know, you say you like to bag on feminists, but I think the radical feminists are actually really right about pornography and how it yes. um, women bear the brunt of it. It's such a scourge. It's such a pox on humanity. It's such a blight on society. And I, I hope that that behemoth somehow can be can be dismantled in in our culture but in, I, and i see some hopeful signs of that too mm-hmm. with the shuttering the the efforts god bless that lila micklewaight from the uh, trafficking hub she her her crusade against Pornhub has been so amazing with the i mean there was the was it the uh, nicholas christoph's column back a couple decembers ago about how children get roped into this and that i think really helped turn the tide and so you know there's hope yet that these horrible idols that are so enshrined in our culture will come crashing down. Yeah. I very much believe that those kinds of things are possible. I'm praying for that too. If, if you peek under the hood of something and you see it's running on Mammon and Moloch, it's probably oh, evil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's pr- probably evil. That's porn and that's trans and that's, that's the whole beast. Absolutely. Yeah. So what... What is, what is some of the work that you're doing now and uh, going forward? You just published a book. What, what What's your um, book on? It's a free and downloadable ebook called Exposing the Gender Lie. I co-authored it with Dr. Jeff Myers of Summit Ministries. It was We wanted to make it free so that anybody, especially pastors, youth leaders, lay ministers who want to protect young people from this gender scourge, could know how the ideology functions, the dangers. We've got a frequently asked questions appendix. We explain how 
this is a medical scandal. I emphasize that very strongly in all interviews that I do is that we need to think of this as a medical scandal because it's the worst one, one of the worst ones to have ever happened. And from my perspective, we've got a chapter in there about how this twists language to serve its own ill ends and how this has captured our institutions. There have been, you know, you mentioned Helen Joyce's book, you know, Abigail Schreier's written a book. There are books on the landscape that all say really good things, but our goal with this one was to provide a thorough yet succinct take on what gender ideology is and how it functions. And then in the last chapter, we give what we very much believe to be a biblical redemptive response to all of the chaos and the madness. And so that's what you'll get if you read Exposing the Gender Lie. The other piece of work that has been doing a lot with is a, a very important documentary film. I was in Tucker Carlson's film last fall, but this this one that I'm about to share with you now is I think even more important because it speaks to the family pain that I was just talking about. It's called Dead Name. Um, it profiles three families that have been shattered by this. Uh, the filmmaker Taylor Reese had seen a speech that I gave about these issues in 2020 and reached out and asked if I would be a contributor because she became acquainted with several families whose children had become ensnared in this, some medically and one just socially. But you see that this is affecting a broad swath of people and it's kind of a hidden, it's an intimate portrait, fly on the wall glimpse of what this is really like for families because you won't see that in the corporate press. But that can be seen at deadnamedocumentary.com. It's very visceral. It's very haunting. Um, but I very much believe in that film and I was honored to be a part of it because I think there needs to be future books written about how this smashed and crushed families. I mean, the carnage, hmm. buckle up. We haven't even begun to see how it wrecked so many people's lives. And these stories need to be told. Hmm. At the beginning of a conversation, you mentioned that you went to ministry school. Uh, how did you know that God was real and that your faith was real? Like, what what was it that convinced you of that? Um, well, I, I was raised in a Christian family, so that does help. And um, I think I, growing up, you, you do have the moral categories of your family. But all I can say is that even, you know, there are people who are raised in Christian families that leave their faith or never never really experienced. And I think every person uh, comes to a, has to make their faith their own. There's a personal journey that each of us takes. And all I can say is that I've encountered the, the supernatural power and presence of the Holy Spirit throughout my life, where I, I hear His voice. Jesus says in the Gospels, my sheep know my voice. And so people will say, oh, you're religious, you're crazy, you hear voices. Like, guilty is charged. Like, I, 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 yes, I've heard God's voice. So there have been a number of experiences over the years. I did go to ministry school. I also went to graduate school at Catholic University of America. God has just been, been a part of my life. Um, I've known His presence over the years. And obviously, the truth of Scripture, it's, it's something I imbibe regularly. Um, yeah. Could you... Um if I may ask, and if you want to, um, could you describe that presence of God? How do you know it's God and not? How do I know it's God? Well, yeah. how do, we're getting into an epistemological conversation of how we know what we know. It's usually uh, context in a personal story that I, I, I want, uh, if you want to share, um, it's usually oh, one wow. knows because 
One knows. I mean, I, um, I, February 3rd of 2000, I just, I did feel the physical presence of God in a way that was just undeniably real to me, where it was just this, this overwhelming sense of power and yet peace is the, the, the tangible love of God, where, you know, God, God is love. Uh, that's first John, the book of first John in the new Testament. That That's one of the, he is holy love. Um, and when you know, you know. But February third, did you stub your toe or get a flat tire? No, I was in a church. I was in a church meeting, and I was just the the pastor that was preaching is is a dear friend, and it was just something about what he brought where I just was overwhelmed with the sense that that God is real, and I, he he preached actually the following night about that chapter in Ephesians that I mentioned earlier about spiritual warfare, and just kind of when your eyes are open to that cosmic struggle between good and evil and you recognize your place in it really drives it home. And so I just remember, you know, awakening to the reality of God in that moment, even though I, even though I had sensed the presence of God before and during my childhood and, you know, I sometimes have dreams where I'm just, I'm trembling and I feel that pull to write them all down and pray into it. And I just, I don't have any, nothing rational about that it's just uh, there's a spiritual sense that it's like okay well um hmm. but it's a, i i i, I want to be very careful that i don't say that everybody has to feel something or experience something to know it's god because everybody has their own journey that and it looks different and god is not limited to um speaking and communicating with people in one way but yeah it it's the answer to this question is uh it's been um answered in your demeanor and in your work i'm sure but how does jordan peterson asked this really hard question like if if god is god and god is real how are you not fundamentally changed by that he, he put it in a very jordan peterson way um how is it how does that inform you then knowing that there's this there's this other reality or your your reality is in position to this higher force like how is it translated into your life well the short answer to that is that if there is a god i'm not him <laughs> but it's really not about me and is that if everything that i do matters then um it, I think it, it just has to be uh, with the recognition that not not just that God's watching and that He sees, hmm. but that it matters for all of eternity because God is eternal. It's not just we're not just cosmic accidents of nature. We're not just a blip on the radar screen. That what we do has meaning and profound and profound purpose beyond what we can even see in this net that there's more to this life than just the natural world um that you know i i don't there's there's a book by brother lawrence called the practice of the presence of god which is i think a fascinating book because he was just this rather unremarkable carmelite monk in in europe but people would travel for hours just to watch him wash dishes because he carried the presence of God and he was conscious of who God was to the point where even in the mundane things like washing dishes, 
God was so present in his life that people wanted to be around it. And so, you know, I, I have a bit more of an exciting life than washing dishes in a monastery somewhere. But, you know, people are watching and I think people are hungry to know that God is real and that his presence can be experienced. Um, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, I'm paraphrasing that, of all the bad men in the world, religious bad men are the worst because they have somehow known the presence of God and have perversed and it's become twisted. And I think of all the of all the cruelty, if I may just add to that, C.S. Lewis, I say of all of all the cruelty in the world, religious cruelty is the worst is the worst because it appropriates God into whatever evil act. And when there's like sexual abuse in the church or something really horrible that happens in God's name. There's that layer of that somehow people have a very hard time psychologically disentangling that somehow God was a part of this. There, are, God even did this to me when that actually had God's love. God had nothing to do with that. God wasn't the sponsor of that evil. Um, so I, I don't know when you do encounter God's love, it just can't help but change how you, approach not only god but your fellow man and i think there's the supernatural power of a transformed life speaks more volumes than anything i might say theologically though i'll be the first to tell you that i think it's important to watch one's theology and doctrine very closely as well yeah yeah so paul charged timothy to do that but especially in this day and age when we are awash in so much confusion about the most basic of things, including our biology. Uh, I certainly want to be a voice that, that though I'm a journalist and I, I work in increasing amounts of public attention, that I, I speak truthfully but in love because, again, I'm, I'm conscious of the pain that's around these issues too, and I, I don't believe that God would want to contribute um, further to that. Even and I'll, but I'll be the first to also say hard, you know, uncompromising truths too. So again, with the tightrope and the tension of all of that, it's I work very hard at trying to walk it very carefully mm-hmm. with humanity, so, grace. Yeah. yeah. As Is much there, as, pardon me. As much as I can, you know. Yeah. yeah. Anything coming up or um, resource? Other resources that you'd like to plug? Are you doing a whirlwind tour this summer? <laughs> I, I was traveling a lot. I just spoke at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. I, I would urge everyone to go watch Dead Name because I think that I really I'm, I think I was so honored to be a part of that that film. Um, I think that is it's that's a very evergreen. I keep telling Taylor Reese, the filmmaker, that she's made such an evergreen um, product because it's timeless. When you could watch this film a year from now and it would still be relevant and it was relevant last year or the year before it's not tethered to any sort of current events um so i i I would anticipate that there might be some some more media about that soon i I don't know how much but uh, that's going to be a discussion piece so everybody please do go to deadnamedocumentary.com small fee to watch but indie filmmakers are Hmm. proving to be an indispensable resource of uh, of truth in this current, you know, just the the derelict reporting that's coming from the corporate outlets about these kinds of issues is just, it's so bad. And so you have to support independent filmmakers. So yeah. that would be a good one. Check out the ebook as well, christianpost.com. Um, we did do a podcast series that 
I mean, last fall, so it's a touch dated called Generation Indoctrination Inside the Transgender Battle. And that is on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. The second season, which is, um, is we just completed, is the audio version of our ebook. Okay. Um, then the bonus episode is I do an interview with Taylor, okay. the dead name. So that's there's a number of resources. And ChristianPost.com is where you get all our current reporting. My colleagues are continuing to do really good reporting on these and other issues. Excellent. Excellent. I will link all of that in the description. Brandon, thanks for taking time out of your day to speak with me. It's been a while we've been planning this. So it's great to actually talk to you and kind of burrow past the political into the theological and then back into the political. So thank you very much. I appreciate you so much, Benjamin. I appreciate it.